Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, May 18th. Today we have no interview. Sorry to disappoint. So it's just Brett and I. We have a interesting segment though. We're going to talk best moats of all time. We've ranked our top 10. Uh, we're just going to rattle them off back and forth, kind of give a little commentary on that. And then we have our traditional sort of more show notes commentary from the week. Uh, but before we get to that, sales pitch time, uh, our flagship sponsor, our partners at 7investing, you can use our code CCM. Uh, it's officially been, what, a year and a month now? Like getting there? Yeah, right? they're they're heading into yeah, a year and two months. Had to, you know, they're cruising into their second year. There's been some market volatility recently in some of the high growth names, as we know. So some of those prior recommendations or recent ones may be at a better valuation right now, or they might not be. Uh, We don't want to spoil anything, but (laughs) there's opportunities abounding. I might also add that this is when having a service feels more worth it to me because those tech companies that usually, I mean, I guess they have a wide range of uh, sort of expertise, but Simon's very good with tech. Max is good with tech. I guess Matt's good with tech as well. Uh, Steve and Honorbon also are Dana too. I guess the whole most team. most the whole team. Yeah, <laughs> uh, a lot of them have had premium valuation, so I really look forward to this upcoming month of Rex. But that's all for that. Just use our code CCM. You get ten dollars off. Without further ado, let's get to the show. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome in. We're going to kick things off with our moat ranking. So we've ranked our top 10. We're going to start from 10. We're going to alternate. Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Um, yeah, I'll go ahead and go first. I kind of just have them listed out, and then I have just like two or one bullet points of why. So okay, kind of list I... it out and give a quick reason why. Probably be good. We can take up like 15 minutes or so, okay. something like that. My 10th, which lowest on the totem pole here and i couldn't necessarily characterize why and so you've kind of done have you done old ones or newer ones uh i got i mean they're all around today some of the moats may have been better in the past but it's yeah, hard they're to call all it. they're all relevant today so okay it's kind of hard to call it a great moat if it's not around today if anymore. it eroded today that means it wasn't actually as good as people thought yes you're right uh but my 10th one is chipotle uh, kind of a shocker here. Obviously, a that's a wild card. Industry. I did not think of that one. All right, what do you? Why? What, I don't know. I, I think the uh, as far as restaurants go, if you had to pick one to have any moat, I'd pick McDonald's and Domino's. But really? I think Chipotle's up there. Yeah, like I said, I couldn't characterize why, but when I think about the ones that have the largest lock-in with me as restaurants, Chipotle is one. Probably the um, top one. Yeah, they got brand equity, I guess. That's a real thing, I guess. They built it up over even past the call, I think. That is an interesting start, though. When uh, I put I, it down, it just kept going lower and lower on my rankings because I realized I couldn't exactly categorize <laughs> why it has a moat. But it's it, it, the company's done quite well, and uh, it's mm-hmm. the ingredients. Yeah, it's I the think special th- recipe. Uh, the, the secret formula. Yeah, I don't know if it's a secret formula for rice and beans, but 
uh, I think they are, I guess you could argue they're building it up over time. In five years, it could be a lot stronger than it is today. I think there's an argument to be made there. Yeah. Okay. What's your 10th? Uh, my 10th is going to be Home Depot. I'm mm-hmm. thinking strong decades of brand equity and economies of scale is really strong here. Yeah. You know, I kind of think of it uh, as similar to Costco, which is higher up on my rankings, but Costco kind of executed in building that moat a little better. I mean, Home Depot is one of the top performing stocks of all time. I think it was a, it's like a 500 beggar since inception or probably higher now from when I last looked. So the execution was obviously strong versus like almost every other business, but the moat, you know, of like, all right, low prices, good, you know, brand equity with consumers. We're going to treat everyone well. Um, The employees are going to be paid well and they're going to actually provide value to like the shoppers at the store. That experience that people have, I think it's very similar, and it's really, really hard to penetrate that mode. I mean, there, there's a second player there that lows, but it seems like kind of one of those duopolies that, at least in the United States, is very rational. And I think that's because they both have really strong modes. Yeah, uh, that was definitely one I considered putting on my rankings. I thought you'd have that one. My ninth, though, is Nintendo. Uh, I guess we are biased shareholders. Talk, yeah, talking our book with this one, yeah. But... Uh, the IP, uh, I think, w- is pretty timeless. Um, no matter what system you put it on, as long as gaming is a large part of life, I, I think Mario, they own part of Pokemon. Uh, companies like that are always going to be around. Uh, it's just a staple of gaming. Yeah, IP stuff, entertainment stuff is very simple. I mean, you have to, you know, the moat can be there and you might not be good at it. Kind of like with the, I think the company, I think it was Fox with that DC comic stuff. Really, you know, big comic book business, just like Marvel, but Disney executed a lot better with Marvel. Uh, but the other thing I'd then, add, or go ahead. The other thing I'd add is it's that uh, you extract all the oil, the whole Buffett quote, you extract the oil and then it seeps back down into the ground every five years or so because you can just repeat the same game. How mm-hmm. many Mario Karts have there been? Each uh, eight. One's a good seller. I think there's been eight or ten. <laughs> well, right. if you don't count the mobile ones, yeah. The, yeah. I mean, it's clear I, the the IP ones, the entertainment ones. People overlook them, I think, uh, because they're so simple. But it's really just black and white. You either have it, or you don't, and it's built up over decades. So. All right. What's your ninth? Okay, my ninth one. I think this is the all the only other one that we own. So it's going to sound like we're just talking our book on this ninth one. Uh, but Autodesk, uh, and you could probably argue this for a few other of those workplace software things. Basically, the whole thesis on why this software like Autodesk and their products, which if you don't know, basically provides the you know cr- design tools for the manufacturing world and the architecture, engineering, and construction industries. There's competitors as well, but the argument is that they have extremely high switching costs. I would argue one of the highest switching costs of any software or product in the world, and that is because it takes hours and hours and hours to learn the software. And now, on top of that, they have strong brand equity with a few of their popular products that gives them phenomenal pricing power. Now, you could argue that you don't want to squeeze them out so much, or I don't know what the analogy would be, where you anger your customers by using that pricing power Mortgage too much. The moat. Mortgage the moat. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and then also on top of that, there are network effects because of the steady cross-communication between teams of software products like this. So, you know, different people within the AEC industries, architecture, engineering, construction, and manufacturing, they're sending files to each other. Um, and there's definitely other companies besides Autodesk. There's 
you know, Ansys. I'm thinking of just off the top of my head. I don't know that company that well, but there's Dassault. Um, I mean, you can also argue stuff like Adobe is similar to this. They kind of have their own niche, though. Yeah, and I, the reason I put Autodesk is it seems like they, within especially the number one product they have, Revit, that one specifically has one of the strongest modes in the world. I it's think. like 90% market share, right? Yeah, 90, I think they have high switching costs, great brand equity because everyone loves the product even though if they sell it for a high price and yeah, there's network effects from all the communication people have. It's the David, you know, the David Gardner quote where it's like if this company disappeared tomorrow, what would happen? Uh, uh, the, the, construction, of, the construction industry would slow down. It's part of the supply chain of it, really. Right. And I think a lot of uh, customers wouldn't be able to operate for probably a good two to three months. Yep. But, all right. My eighth one, uh, waste management. Um, this is sort of a regulatory moat because mm, you good have one, to get good stuff one. for landfills. Yep. Um, and not to mention the barriers to entry is just that it's not attractive. No one wants to be. <laughs> uh, it's not – there isn't a lot of venture dollars going into collecting trash. And uh, I guess – it's just a less sexy industry to be in, and it requires certain regulatory approvals uh, yeah, that they limited, already have. Yeah, limited licensing. Yeah, regulatory barriers to entry are usually like. I mean, they yeah, make, I guess it's not a, necessarily the company I would own, but it, it solidifies the moat pretty yeah, strongly. The, yeah, just because you identify a moat doesn't mean the company is a good investment. Uh, and I guess Lockheed Martin, I, I forgot about them. I may have put them on the list if I thought about them. They have the ultimate one of these, I think, very similar to waste management. Yeah, to, uh, Boeing, maybe they have a lot of government contracts. Yeah, Boeing as well. Yeah, and waste management also has economies of scale potentially small one just because it's hard to get all that stuff you know it's hard to get it all up and running that whole system yeah, of, of waste management definitely requires i mean they have quite the fleet the fleet the landfills all that stuff all right uh what's your eighth okay eighth is philip morris or premium cigar cigarette makers uh so the regular core ta- capture here relates well for what you just said it creates that barrier to entry and then there's that his restriction on advertising that kind of embeds the incumbent so it's really hard to enter the market if you can't tell your consumer what your product is so outside is this, of the limited stuff within the stores does that encompass altria your philip morris pick uh well yeah philip morris is ultra i mean yeah i okay. uh, just all of these you know cigarette makers i mean this you know this is list. a this is a cons- you know obviously huge durability concerns with this one there's um i think focus compounding uh, which, if you like our show, you probably like some of the stuff they do. They do a lot of writing on, like, uh, you know, philosophy and investing stuff like that. They had a they talked about the difference between a moat, which is what we're describing today, versus durability. Uh, the durability of the cigarette industry is obviously a huge concern, and this is kind of a unique situation, not very repeatable, where it became the ultimate sin industry. Everyone hated it, but the moat is in, is almost impenetrable at this point. It's just the worry about the actual demands and the cultural things and. You know, the moat of the, the cigarette products are huge, but there's the vaping stuff and all the innovation in other ways that can chip away at this moat. Or not even chip away at this moat, just take, like, no, the so, markets, take the consumer somewhere else. Yeah, my this cracked my list as well. I put it down as Altria, but it's, I mean... Same thing, yeah. Market share within the cigarette industry, Marlboro's, has been north of 40% for the last decade. It's been high Longer, for, probably. Longer, yeah. I don't know if it was above 40% prior to that, but now it's at 43%. Yes, there is – it's hard to refute that their uh, moat within cigarettes is basically impenetrable. But 
obviously the the uh, underlying trends of the industry as a whole aren't that promising. So you might have a moat within something, but uh, if don't miss the forest for the trees. Yeah, durability, I guess, is something, you know, you always have to think about durability as well. Yeah, all right. Uh, is that me now? Yeah, you're seven. Seventh, uh, Disney, kind of the same thing as Nintendo. Yeah, Disney's on my list. I, I think Buffett's talked about this. It's the uh, They can tap into that same IP they've always had. Uh, it's hard. You can't. It feels like you can't just manufacture that sort of IP, that share in the customer's mind. I don't know. It's a big one that Buffett's always talked about, and uh, it just it, it, it's timeless. Yep, I agree. I have a few other things, but I'll save it for my ranking or okay. when, I, when I bring it up. All right. I, yeah. My seventh is going to be Coca-Cola. Again, boring. Everyone knows this one. But I would argue they have the number one brand equity in the world, which people kind of – that's kind of a vague one from a moat standpoint, but it is real. And you can maybe argue Nike, Apple, a few others are close. But I think over the last uh, – it's been over a century, they've – been at this peak where you know apple and nike's been a little bit of a less time although it's probably you know they're obviously they're bigger companies i think nike's bigger i would uh, or go ahead yeah coca-cola is obviously the one that comes to mind because that's sort of the uh you, you hear buffett talk about the mode all the time when you listen to the yeah. old shareholder meetings and stuff like that but i think they might be going through and i guess i don't have the data it's dur- durability concerns the yeah. same thing as altria yeah durability is, concerns market share is fine but how's the underlying category doing? Yeah, and then the thing I had here is the, if you're thinking about, okay, well, I'm confused. Why would Coca-Cola have a moat? I think the proof is in the simplicity of the product. So they've ingrained the world through a century of advertising about what a bottle of Coke means. And it, they basically try to make it mean happiness in a broader terms. And the simplicity of the product, it, it's very easy to copy. But why have they stood the test of time? It's because they have that brand equity built up over decades and decades and decades. And yeah. there's, it's yeah, you could argue, okay, soda consumption is going down, but you know when when people are drinking soda, it's most likely going to be Coke or, or Pepsi too, I guess. Yeah. All right. Uh, sixth for me, Autodesk, similar to you. Uh, it's something that I think the customers couldn't live without. Um, yeah, talking our book. Yeah. <laughs> that's. I mean, you can kind of tell by uh, the pricing power, which mm-hmm. you, know, power, you yep. hope they don't. And at one point, I believe uh, one of the customers just wrote an open letter, like, "Hey, they yeah, they, the they got a group of architects together, yeah, saying, listen." We all know we can't live without it. Just please stop pricing. Yeah, don't prices. don't be so aggressive, or it's going to ruin our basically their cash flow and profitability. So they wanted to make the. They were like, "Hey, keep the ecosystem better." And I guess you know that could be mortgaging the moat, but you know it shows that it's there. Yeah, definitely. All right, uh, what about you? Six. Okay, I have Disney here at number six. You talked about the IP, but I like to talk about the theme parks as well. That gives them economies of scale. People really underrate the amount of capital investment that needs to go into these Disneyland and Disney World. I mean, yeah. what did they spend on Galaxy World? That small Star Wars part was like $4 billion. I mean, the cap, also, the embedded uh, PP&E is billions and billions of dollars there. When, when you can make that experience strong, it, uh, I hate to use the word flywheel effect, but uh, I think it keeps, it gives people a personal relationship to the franchises or the intellectual property that you have. Yep, and the, yep, yep, and then the, I also have the vertical integration through the three streaming services. This is kind of a developing moat because it's really early on, yeah. but that could, you know, over time there could be a lot of moat characteristics uh, with those. I think those are pretty obvious. Yeah, I don't, th- I don't care how 
video consumption changes over time, I, the IP still translates. Yep, yep, for sure. All right, for sure. Uh, five, no, yeah, five. five. Costco. Um, I just, I mean, the model is so, uh, it's one of these uh, idiosyncratic businesses that it's so unique in that you can buy all the, everyone knows sort of the story of how they make very little money on the product and they make all their money on their memberships. Yeah. No gross profit dollars on membership. Everyone. Yeah. We all know this. The story gets told, uh, it seems every month, but it's a good one. Yeah. And they've also taken steps to, uh, the, the, the corporate management of the company has been really, really strong. It's one where employees like working there, people like being there. And it's because they're paid well, and they've they're making investments in their employees. Yeah, I don't think a lot of companies are in the position to be able to do that. Yeah, the this isn't talked about much, and some people might argue it's not necessarily a competitive advantage or a moat. But I like to think about it a lot, where building up not only the consumer brand equity, but the employee brand equity can be huge. You treat them well, give them good benefits, pay them whatever the average is at Costco. It's like twenty two bucks an hour, and that was. Three, four years ago, I bet it's like $25 on average now. So yeah, that can I, be a big advantage because it helps the consumers enjoy the process as well. Yeah, especially at a grocery store. I think the mood among employees gets passed through to the customers. Uh, mm-hmm. What's your fifth one? Okay, my fifth is going to be Google. Uh, no matter what, like, you know, there's a lot of hate on Google, I guess. You know, you're a big company. You're going to get a lot of hate uh from you know news outlets stuff like that and i guess it's because google kind of disrupted a lot of their business you you, see you can see why uh they're angry but i still believe google has tremendous brand equity among consumers among other things and it also has i believe tremendous lock-in and economies of scale across a few of its products i'll exclude gcp here because that's going to be a uh i guess hint one of my higher ones is going to be one of those cloud infrastructure players but you look at youtube search maps android chrome and others i'm missing I think they all have unique modes. Some have sw- network effects, some have switching costs, some have economies of scale. I mean, search, you might not think. like I think it definitely has economies of scale. If you look at, you know, there's a lot of people and we're victims of it that argue, oh, well, they have a data advantage. And a lot, I think 90% of the time it's kind of like, eh, maybe they have a data, you know, like another company. Sure. But at Google, I, I think they definitely do. You know, YouTube has... One of the best network effects in the world, I believe. So, you know, overall, Google, I think, cracks my top five. Yeah, uh, I, I will definitely agree with that here shortly. My uh, my fourth one, though, is going to be Altria, pretty much for all the reasons you just claimed. It's such a difficult industry to compete in. One, there is uh, regulatory hurdles, um, not only in that you can't just manufacture uh, tobacco without the licenses, but you also, uh, it's very hard to market your product. Um, and there's literally uh, customer addiction, so they that's tend, part of they it too, tend yeah. to come back. Mm, that reminds me of Starbucks too. I guess that's someone I I never I didn't think about him. I don't think I it thought would about crack. putting him on the list, but I don't know. Just didn't crack the list. It, yeah, it might be it might be in my honorable mentions if I had time to think of those. Starbucks is. I mean, you can't deny the stock returns and the, the profits, but I I don't think it's as strong as any in my top ten. I have Starbucks every day. It probably should have gone to my <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, I would argue it's stronger than Chipotle. I'm still going to nag on that wild card pick. But I'm but. not – yeah, I guess maybe it could have been my 10. But I'm also having – you know, it's the bags of coffee, not just the yeah. – I'm not you know, going to the store. So I don't think I'm one of those 
I'm saving money. <laughs> yeah, they, it, Barbara Corcoran, if you're listening, don't worry. Ryan's on pace to become a millionaire by saving his three yeah. bucks each day. Don't of worry. Um, okay, uh, I'll hit my fourth one. It's going to be TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor. Mm. I will think a lot of people would agree saying that they are number one in the world when it comes to economies of scale. It, it just, you know, framing it in the mind of their competitors, it is going to take Intel Basically, the oh, Samsung, I guess, does it as well. So there's a bit of a duopoly, but TSMC is number one. Uh, and then you have some Chinese brand uh, companies that have been trying to do that but really haven't gained market share. So it is going to take Intel, which is their basically their only Western competitor. It's going to take them a few years and tens of billions of dollars to even try and catch up to their semiconductor uh, manufacturing capabilities. And this is not guaranteed that they can. I just think the economies of scale with this business is going to be really, really hard to penetrate. Now, you could have argued that Intel had one in the 90s, what, just like this. Uh, so there's a way it could get disrupted, maybe, but at least right now, it's really hard to see how anyone could penetrate this moat. Yeah. Uh, does ASML make your list? No, no, that, that, I don't. I don't look. They may have the tech, whatever you know. They have the best tech in the world, but uh, I don't believe uh, technology is a competitive advantage. So, uh, uh, hot take. I don't think I that's a cold a, take, really. No, I mean, you, you know, tech can drive a good stock returns if it's if it generates profit. I just don't think it's a long term competitive. You know, it's not a unique competitive advantage. It just means that you may be more innovative, and that's great. It doesn't mean like just because the company has a moat or doesn't have a moat doesn't make it a good or bad investment. It's just you know, might be a different reason. Okay. Uh, my third one is Intuit. Uh, oh, sneaky but good, I think, yeah. Yeah. Uh, once, I feel like once you get old enough to do your taxes and you use TurboTax once, you're pretty much locked in for life. It And uh, they thrive on FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And I, <laughs> whether or not you, you think it's fear a good from mode. whether you're doing it wrong. That's the fear. Yeah. Yeah. And those in crunch time, I think everyone just turns to TurboTax. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely there. Definitely there. People have tried to attack the moat for years. It hasn't really worked out. I don't know. I do hate the business, though. I hate it, but I use it. Yeah. And I mm. think most people, by default, just kind of, they're worried they're going to do it wrong, and they just, well, let's just trust TurboTax. Yeah, well, is there government risk here if they ever decide to just kind of take everything in-house? Maybe. I mean, they Weren't these concerns cited, I don't know, five, ten years ago? No, that's the concern, yeah. I mean, you know, it seems like the moat's there, but that is the concern with it. It could just go away overnight. But, you know, obviously that's just theoretical. It might not actually be realistic and ever happening. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't, know if any, I don't know if it ever will happen. I think the gover- hard to government should maybe own... They'd probably, I mean, uh, yeah, they'd probably make shareholders whole, you know, if they ever did that. All right. What's your third? Okay, my third's going to be AWS, but you could include the three big cloud providers here. I guess Google's kind of a little bit smaller, but they're making their they're making their way here. I think they have three of the core moat characteristics that people talk about. They have brand equity. Uh, you know, you might not think about that with AWS, but among their customers, they have tremendous brand equity. They have a tremendous economies of scale and they have probably you could argue i bet you know we said autodesk and products like that have some of the highest switching costs in the world i think these companies do have the highest switching costs in the world you could imagine say okay netflix is like aws's largest customer mm-hmm. or at least one of them 
you could imagine it would cost Netflix like a billion dollars in cash or more to switch from AWS to someone else. And that is not counting any of the non-cash expenses or the risk to the brand if the product deteriorates because you're transitioning to something else. Yeah. Uh, Spotify's, if you listen to that Spotify episode where they signed on with Google Cloud, it's it's hell trying to switch. It's hell, and, and once sw- you do, you don't yeah, want to do it again. Yeah, and it is also, kind of, that's kind of why the adoption has been just kind of steady. Uh, and I, I, I realized it this year is why it's been just so steady and it just didn't just kind of happen overnight like people just switching to Google Chrome or whatever. Everyone seemed to switch within two to three years' time is because the legacy solutions have high switching costs. So it does take, you know, the legacy solutions or whatever those are. Migration takes time. Yes, the migration, yeah. And uh, those, but <laughs> it's really tough to leave. It's kind of like you can't almost once you get to a big enough scale. And it's expensive to start one, which is why... Microsoft, Google, and Amazon are the big providers. And, and like people like IBM have really failed. Um, maybe that's just, I don't know, they seem to fail at a lot of it. execution these days, but yeah. All right, my second one is Ferrari. Um, good one, good one. I think they're very, it's really, really hard to replicate what they've done. Um, the history is something that's kind of ingrained in the culture. Um, it's just, you can't really repeat the, they get a lot of pricing power because of the events, because of what the brand means. Uh, the exclusivity uh, helps make make people feel prestigious. Um, that's really hard to replicate. Uh, and not to mention they have uh, the, the racing history has kind of become a huge mm, part last of them. Ten, I, they haven't won in 10 years, though. So, and it hasn't mm, affected them. No, it hasn't. I know. That doesn't really matter. I was just that, that doesn't matter to the moat, but... Yeah, the racing stuff, is, it's a part of it, too. Um, yeah, I think it makes sense. It takes it would take decades to replicate the model because it took decades for Ferrari to build up their, and I've used this 20 times, so roll your eyes if you want, but the brand equity with their consumers, it takes decades to build. Yeah, and then, you know, once you, uh, you don't want to miss buying one. If you're like a loyal user, or not a loyal user, a loyal member customer, of customer, that Ferrari yeah. club, yeah. So well, theoretically, I mean, some some members, some some people might be one-time purchasers, but yeah. All right. Uh, what's your number two? Okay, it's going to be Visa. I think they have the ultimate network effect. Number one, in, I think it's almost undisputed number one network effect in the world. I mean, you have the most cross-use cases among both sides of the marketplace, merchants and consumers. You have embedded switching costs. You have extremely high frequency of use. A low take rate, similar to, say, hmm, Costco or something, where they could. I mean, they have the pricing power there, but they really just take those thin, thin margins, which basically makes it. I mean, it. It's impossible. There's no way, like, to you can put Mastercard here too. There's no way within the card space that you could disrupt these players. I think the proof is in the upkeep costs. Their core business basically has minimal operating expenditures, and it kind of rounds to zero. Uh, you know, since they're so big, I mean, it might be, you know, a few hundred million dollars, but to them, that's basically zero and they have no capital needs and yet they keep chugging along each year and no one comes up to, you know, disrupt them. Now there's a little bit of a durability risk. You know, a lot of people talk about whether cards are going to go out of favor over the next decade, um, whether buy now, pay later is going to come in crypto, uh, if QR codes are going to take over, whatever. Uh, but that's not really what the mode is evaluating. Like we're saying within the core card business. There's, I don't want to say no way, but it seems like it's 
hundred percent, not a hundred percent, but pretty damn close yeah. for them to stick around. Yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely a top moat, and I probably would have had it on there. I thought I you just forgot. I thought you were going to put it on there anyway, so I figured oh. we'd talk about it. Uh, but my number one's going to be Google. You already mentioned it. Uh, search. If I had to bet on any big tech piece of big tech or whatever to be here in twenty five years, it'd be Google Search. What about Maps? You put there too? Uh, no. No? How would that? How would they go? I don't think Google Maps has as much market market share as Google Search. I don't think it's that no. differentiated than Apple Maps. Apple Maps. Oh, I would argue Apple Maps is pretty bad. Google Maps is a lot you better. You don't use Apple Maps. I have an iPad. I've used it before. It's pretty bad. I use it on the go and every day. It's pretty. It's know. fine. It does the job. Well, I said. Google Maps probably Google searches market share is like eighty percent. I think Maybe. Maps is probably similar. No, because Bing has surprisingly high market share. You'd be surprised at how much it has. But I guess I don't it. think so. I, I don't think Maps has. It's not that much. I don't feel a difference. I've downloaded Google Maps. I've downloaded Apple Maps. It's pre-installed. I still use Apple Maps. I don't know. I don't know. I guess that's just I kind think of most subjective. Apple users I know use Apple Maps. I don't know. There's a lot. I mean, the product doesn't seem that much better. But search, I think, is basically the most impenetrable moat of any offering, maybe in the world. I don't know. search. I mean, I think Maps embedded on the net, whatever the market share on Android phones is. I think. No. I think it's gonna be the same. But agree to disagree. On. Agree yeah. to disagree. All right. What's yours? Okay, uh, Costco I have for number one. You already talked about most of this. Yeah, I mean, they have basically everything but network effects, economies of scale, brand equity built up over decades. The extremely thin margins act as a moat as well. Um, You know, I think the question I kind of like to ask if I'm thinking, all right, what does this company have a competitive advantage? You kind of like, and basically with all these companies, you kind of ask like, all right, if you were given $10 billion right now, or maybe a little higher for bigger companies or smaller for a smaller company. Like if I were, if someone gave you $10 billion right now, how would you go about dethroning this business with the same business model, like, or a similar model, you know, attacking the same customer with a similar product, like not trying to just innovate with a different, you know, way of going about things like with crypto or something for visa. If you can't come up with anything, I think the mode is likely strong. That's yeah. kind of the question I have with Costco. Like, how, how would you do it? You can't. That's why, yeah, that's why it's atop the moat list. And that's probably why it tends to trade at a premium over its entire life it has. So, yeah. Well, I guess hindsight it is a premium, but <laughs> yeah, the, it feels like a premium in the time. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And I guess that's the question. Yeah. Look, yeah. When, when looking at this top 10, don't think like, all right, I'm going to listen yeah, to this. Yeah. This is the top 10. These are obviously all good investments. You know, a lot of the times, I think most of these here traded a premium valuation and for good reason is because the moat has developed over time. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our top 10. Uh, just so everyone knows, we don't own most of them. So obviously not recommendations, but uh, we're going to. Maybe, we should. Maybe, maybe, we, maybe yeah, we should. Maybe we should now. <laughs> We're going to hit a quick break, and then we've got our traditional show notes uh, on the second half. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one, so you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color 
red color, where are you? <sighs> All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. All right, welcome back in. Uh, I'm going to kick things off. Muddy Waters released a short report on Lemonade this week. Uh, fascinating one, kind of a battleground stock. I guess you could say there's uh, passionate shareholders, uh, and then there's people that obviously don't believe in the business as much. Uh, but Muddy Waters opened their letter, or sh- I should say... Uh, video, right? Was it a video? It was a letter. It was a letter to Dan Schreiber. But they released a video afterwards that showed what the problem was. Uh, but he opened his letter with uh, Dear Mr. Schreiber, who is the CEO of Lemonade. Muddy Waters LLC is short Lemonade because it is clear that Lemonade does not give a – you guys can fill in the blank – about securing its customers' sensitive personal information. I thought that was a hell of an opening. Uh, it's not really how I open my letters. Um, but well, yeah. these short, I mean a lot of this times, you know. We've seen it with the, the lobe letters in the past, the third point letters. Yeah, I mean, this how they this is kind of the typical tactic is to you part of it is to try to get under people's skin, make them act irrationally and get angry. That's kind of you And know. it may have worked because uh, well, uh, I'll talk about the basis of the report, which was that Lemonade's website contains and I have this in quotes, an unforgivably negligent security flaw that exposes personal information. So Muddy Waters basically said that Lemonade should take its website down uh, because it's exposing personal information uh, and they have notified the re- various regulators, which I always find funny. Like, that was a mistake we told on you. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. you know, that's their job. Uh, anyway, uh, I don't really understand the complexities or the intricacies, intricacies of the security problem and what sort of they violated. It sounds like it was just uh, a security flaw on in personal information. But... Uh, Shy, I think it's Shy. Shay, Shay. Is it Shay? Definitely Shay. Who's an exec and I believe a co-founder at Lemonade followed uh, the short report up by stating that the quotes, or the quotes as in like their uh, insurance quotes, uh, that they found were shareable. Um, And they said uh, it wasn't a vulnerability, but it was by design. and so he's basically saying this was uh, like I hope you and he said I hope you don't didn't spend a lot of time on this because it was like a blatant error. But Muddy Waters came back and said this was a big mistake. We see through this lie. Response forthcoming, uh, and then I invited them on to CNBC for a debate, which I did not see a response to. Um, I, this came after a secondary raise from Lemonade. Uh, and the CEO has sold $48 million worth of stock. Now, I don't know if this is a security issue, but uh, do you think, I mean, how would you respond if you were a CEO and a short report came out? Hmm. It seems of, like, do, what do you think of Shay's response? How about that? Meh, meh. I don't, I tend to, in this golden age of fraud, I tend to not believe, you know, I, I side on the fact of not believing the executives, just because there's been such a history of negligence among regulators right now, that seems like there's a lot of potential fraud going out there, and I don't know anything about Lemonade, uh, but uh, it seems like the ideal thing is to either just do kind of a one letter that's short back, like two, three pages, make it short, and then not like a short report, but like short in length, refute it respectfully and say, well... Execute over the next three years to prove you 
wrong. Uh, the business is going to be fine. And then just go about your business and ignore them because, you know, whatever. That's all you can control. You think it's when people responding? get personally, uh, no, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Respond if, and the stock collapses. Why don't you just buy back the shares if you think it trades under its value? Yeah, that's kind of the thing here. I was surprised Muddy Waters didn't just go for valuation concerns because valuation <laughs> short, is short because it feels overvalued. Yeah, I mean, that's not much of a headline, I guess. But the right isn't lemonade. The big argument isn't really it, the big argument well, is that the business model isn't. Special, that, it's that it's just online and that they're trading at a crazy multiple. So something that tends to grind my gears a little bit is when sometimes I feel like short reports come out with like some harsh thesis about like whether it, like management is malevolent or fraud or, or stealing or yeah, yeah. When in reality, it's overvalued. Yeah, uh, and they know they can kind of uh, take advantage of that, but. Who knows? They might be right, though. I don't know who's right. I, we'll see. Yeah, that's true. The other thing I would say, and maybe I don't understand that problem enough, but let's say this was a problem and it was bad and they just took the site down and changed it real quick and then put it back online. Does that really change the business that much? No. Is it worth being short just because yeah. of one security issue? Yeah, yeah. The Yeah, I don't know. Well, maybe it's worse. Than, maybe it's worse than we think. Yeah, I, I was surprised. I I watched the little short video and I was like, "Huh, I would have thought you would have just said 50 times sales." Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's yeah. all. I, you know, 50, 40 times sales. You yeah. know, this gets cut in half. It's at twenty five times sales. Uh, that's it. That's all we need, guys. Um, yeah, but that's not as exciting. I don't know. We'll, there's been a lot of. Th- accusations against lemonade right because they are kind of that disruptor it'll be interesting to see if they are successful over the next years over the next few years all right what's your story okay marketa filed its s1 this is a fintech stock very interesting company i'm reminded of the latest uh bill Gurley quote i think we may have been discussing this offline but he basically said uh, at some interview he's like you know what guys well if the public markets went fintech stocks trading at 30 times sales we'll give you as many as we can and he's a venture capitalist so he's kind of you know the one giving it to them um that reminded me of this so i think it's probably going to be one that's just going to trade a a valuation that keeps us uh possibly out of there uh but their mission it's an interesting business model is to be the global standard for modern card issuing so they work with other companies to issue cards and have these api plugins to add different features quickly that they can offer customers value prop seems to be speed versus legacy card issuing um but it feels a bit like a middleman some people are arguing that they could be easily replaced if say you know one of their largest customers like square just went direct to the bank partners here but who knows they're not uh so far they have more than 320 million cards issued customers include uber doordash affirm square and i wrote assuming afterpay uh because they weren't listed but i think i confirmed that the afterpay uses them too 103% sales growth last year, $118 million in gross profit last year. So, Cy, we're probably going to get a 4 or $5 billion valuation, but that's okay. Uh, they take about 0.2% of the card transactions. That's their take rate. So, for the value they're providing, they're you know just taking some of that off the top, say, when Square, uh, the cash card or whatever, uses a uh, uh, makes a purchase. Uh, but Interestingly, 70% of their net revenue comes from Square. So they maybe think, you know, Square's paying them all this money. Could Square buy them out 
and save themselves a lot of money, just kind of integrate this and make them make this part of their financial services go B two B with this. Uh, why would you know? Why not? Yeah. Why not? They probably could. They just had a. I think they just had a convertible offering today. So mm, interesting, <laughs> interesting. That could be Thesis. exciting. There you go. Well, the yeah, it's acquisition money. Yeah, because people are talking about a firm because uh, uh, Peloton uses a firm and Peloton has similar. I don't think it's as high, but it has customer concentration or firm, excuse me, has customer concentration with Peloton. And people are arguing like, all right, well, a firm is just kind of a simple, uh, and they're the buy now, pay later thing. They're just the simple API connecting, you know, Peloton to the bank. Um, seems like a very simple product to be worth that much. And people are arguing, you know, Marquette is just an API for Square and Sutton Bank, their bank partner. Um, but who knows? They're, they're obviously providing a lot of value. But I haven't looked at the full S one. I just kind of glanced at some of the highlights. But on this face, what are your thoughts on this business? It seems, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't totally understand it. I, I'm, it feels like that 4% or whatever that comes off every transaction, how there's yeah, the two banks, point, 2. There's 7, the cards, yeah. Yeah. then there's Marquetta, and then there's just like these 0. 0.2, 0. 0.1. It feels like that's getting pretty crowded. Uh, and I'm not sure who has leverage in that tiny little transaction space. Well, if we want to go advantage. earlier, it's probably Visa and MasterCard. Yeah, there's I don't think, always yeah. some new avenue of fintech that I didn't know existed, uh, and I guess this is one of them. So, yeah, I don't know. I I thought it looked promising, but there was a few questions. Yeah, on the durability concerns. I don't know. And that that sort of customer concentration, no matter like how bullish you are on say Square's prospects or whatever. I just don't know if you can. No, it's a serious risk. It's such a risk. I don't know. If, maybe maybe because you could hold them hostage. It's kind of what Microsoft did with Nuance Communications, right? Where they're like, "We're going to buy you out for this much," or we're going to drop, or we're going to drive you from Azure or whatever. Yeah. Oh, well, that wasn't publicly said. I just yeah, people were assuming that happened. Yeah. Um. All okay, right. Well, the, my uh, I found something interesting this week. Uh, I kind of came across this. I don't know how I saw it. I guess maybe you'd call this a current state of Fintoit or something like that. But uh, the title here is it's all about tax deductions. So Aldi's, which is like a discount grocer, it's pretty big on the East Coast. It's not very big over here, but it was founded in 1946 in Germany. The CEO was named Theo Albrecht. Apparently in 1971, he was kidnapped and held for ransom for 17 days. They asked for 7 million German marks, which is like equivalent, I think it was equivalent to $2 million uh, in ransom money for his release. Apparently he was held at gunpoint. The ransom was eventually paid. Uh, he was let go. Um, they Half the money ended up get it being recovered. They found the two people that uh, kidnapped him. And afterwards, Albrecht attempted to claim the ransom money as a tax-deductible business expense. It did not go through. Is this the kind of frugality and cost-consciousness you like to see out of a CEO? <laughs> uh, serious – I mean – no, I, th- I don't know, I it was- but it's a funny story. <laughs> the Should this have been a business expense? Should this be tax deductible? I don't know, but yeah, that is the kind of mindset I think you want from a CEO. I don't know. Penny you know, here, putting yourself there? in a situation to get kidnapped is kind of tough. I guess probably could happen to anyone, but I don't know. I mean, that's weird. It doesn't seem like he would be a big, you know, like target for this type of stuff. What maybe, seven? maybe all these is bigger in Europe than we realize. Yeah, he could be. Because he was kidnapped in Germany. Oh, okay, maybe they're like the uh, the big dog over there. Yeah, huh? That's quite the story. It's almost weird. It's I don't it's, know. So apparently, it isn't tax deductible. But doesn't it seem like 
if the company's paying that out to save their CEO, couldn't that be considered a business? That's a, yeah, it should be. Yeah, it should be an expense. I mean, we were talking about that with the what pipeline that paid the five million in crypto uh, does or that, Bitcoin. Is that tax deductible? I mean, it should just be an expense, right? That goes against your net income, right? <laughs> I would think so. Wouldn't it? Yeah, the I uh, yeah, I mean, it reminds me. This never happens anymore, or rarely, I guess. Uh, but in the olden days, there was like the the you know the standard oil types, kind of the big trust. Sometimes there would be assassination attempts against some of the managers there because of all you know. In, in that day, uh, we were talking about treating your employees well. Um, in those days, there was a lot of evidence that they weren't treating their employees well, and that led to the rise of you know a lot of workers being upset for working twelve-hour days in the horrid conditions and. There was like the assassination attempts on these people and they almost die. And it's almost like thinking about how, say, there's an assassination attempt on like Sundar Pichai or something like that. That's how crazy that was. And it was not like a normal occurrence, but it happened like with decent frequency. Huh. And I guess this is kind of similar. What's your next story? Okay. So we have Druck and Miller, but... I put the N in there, parentheses, Drunken Miller, as we jokingly like to call him. He had his op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. Did you get to read it, or was it not in your paper version? Uh, I must have missed it. I think I it was probably it. probably before then you got your paper version, which I'll have to pick up if you kept any. I'm going to have to get your leftovers. Yeah, well, uh, I'll, I'll maybe give you a few of them. Uh, they're starting to come in frequently. Uh, well, what are you going to keep the, any for? Uh, memorabilia. The inflation. You're going to keep the them all. The inflation crisis of last week. You're going to keep them all, most as memorabilia. You're going to stack it up like a collector. Well, any one of them could have been the top, and I want to save that day. Mm. All right. right. Okay. Well, that's a little bit strange and upsetting. But he had his op-ed and CNBC appearance, and he basically came on to ex- complain, like he always does. But he's one of the best of all time. So it's kind of always interesting to listen. Usually has some interesting stuff, and it's macro talk, so way out of our league. And I'll start by saying, whatever he said, I'm not confident either way that he's right or wrong, but he had some good theories. He called out the fiscal policy of the last year, $6 trillion in stimulus, and then monetary policy, which, you know, zero interest rates, pushing everyone out to riskier assets. Um, well, I guess that's subjective if you want to call Dogecoin a riskier asset, but <laughs> to each his own. Uh, he called it the craziest policy he's ever seen. This is a direct quote. I can't find any period in history where monetary and fiscal policy were this out of step with the economic circumstances, not one. Essentially, his data and evidence was this. $2.5 trillion in QE post-vaccine confirmation, which has led to an absurd boost in retail spending and led to an asset bubble. I think both of those are true. Like, they're really not hard to really hard to argue against those. And all in the name of getting an arbitrary CPI number from 1.4% to 2%, which he deemed as nonsensical, where it's like, you know, these aren't exact numbers. What's the big deal about this 2% thing? We're going to mortgage everything else, you know, create all these other problems just to get to 2%. That's kind of what he was yelling about. And I do think there's some nuances and whatever. There's some things that we don't understand, uh, but I'm pretty highly confident that he is directionally correct here. Uh, what now, are your thoughts? It, I do find it funny that uh, everyone uh, – there's so much talk about how peop, like uh, America's hasn't had the inflation that you we should, and it's like, which why? means we're not spending enough. Yeah, it says why we but want that inflation. But things were going well. Yeah. I didn't think we had that many problems. Maybe I'm just tone deaf and not aware of them. But 
I don't know if like I don't know if the 2.5 trillion QE is <laughs> worth it. Especially post vaccine, I think that totally makes sense. I don't know, but like then, why? But why then you look at his portfolio and it hasn't really changed. Oh well, he's yeah. Just I mean, long big tech. Isn't yeah, it? Am I getting that right? He had owned Amazon and something else. Yeah, yeah, he. I don't want to speak for what he owns, but I believe he had thirty percent in Microsoft. It kind of, I don't know, in his family office. Yeah, he said he. I mean, he said he's been doing. He had his best year in a long time. And he, you know, he blamed the policy, but the. Yeah, it seems like all right. They have this target. They're like, all right, we need this inflation rate. We're gonna not stop until we do. But you got to think about the side effects, right? Of like, you know, there are long-term consequences of asset bubbles. And you know, while it's likely not as bad as big tech, or sorry, not big tech, uh, the dot-com bubble or whatever it was. I mean, they still have consequences if some of these smaller ones were, you know, they can they can, that can hurt. I don't know. And there's other things like. I don't know, the debt kind of matters at some point? Maybe? <laughs> I don't know. No, a lot of people I mean, seem to think now the common sense now... That never matters. Yeah, the common sense seems to be to think that it never matters. Uh, I don't know. I, people have been saying that for 30 years that it matters. Probably longer than that. Probably. I'm well, guessing. now it seems that the common sense is that it doesn't. It kind of switched, strangely. I I, I, uh, I don't know. We'll see. I hope, I hope... Who cares? I hope, yeah, I hope is fine. I hope it's fine, but it seems like uh, maybe the Fed should it's listen to it. maturity. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like everyone, they don't have much, like, criticism at the Fed where they're all on the same page, and that kind of scares me. They're like, yeah, you know, no one has any dissenting opinions, even if it was, like, some gold bug, which I kind of disagree with, too. But I don't know. Well, what's your next story? Uh, Elon started a war. Uh, so this is anecdotal yeah, evidence. I was, I will admit, I was extremely happy on Sunday reading <laughs> it, this stuff. And the, so if you're not aware, last week Elon... Musk, I guess uh, I assume people know him, but Elon tweeted out a notice that Tesla won't be allowing Bitcoin payments anymore, uh, citing environmental concerns. The reason that we find this so interesting uh, is because when they accepted Bitcoin, started accepting Bitcoin, even prior to that, people liked Elon Musk and they liked Bitcoin. And then Bitcoin and Tesla basically became synonymous with one another. And they put that $1.5 billion on the balance sheet. Right. And now it's essentially forced followers to pick sides uh and there was a lot of backlash this week on twitter i honestly felt bad for him but he gets criticism all the time i should probably should i don't think he's a victim i think he's okay i think he's more of a predator than a victim or but um, (laughs) sorry that was that was bad i think that might be the wrong word predator not predator like in the way that people are predatory yeah like yeah i suppose predatory to people that believe in his product a lot you know um but I've seen a lot of – just even – it's more anecdotal evidence, but I saw a lot of tweets where people were like, thanks a lot. I'm canceling my Cybertruck order. It's like, wow. Oh, yeah. 100 bucks. Ooh. <laughs> Stuck it to him. Yeah, you're not going to get that by 2027? Ooh. <laughs> and then also like for just friends that used to kind of you know praise him were like, you know, I'm honestly not that impressed after his SNL appearance and then this environmental concerns over Bitcoin. Which and you're I, like, welcome to the club? <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. It just feels like he maybe uh, maybe ruined his relationship with a lot of his followers, which does in a way drive Tesla. And I think you're seeing that today with the stock price. I guess we were looking at it. It was down like, what, 3% this morning. Bitcoin, if you think it doesn't matter, it's been down like 20% since he tweeted this. So Yeah. Well, the, the, the core thing 
you know, whether there's all these nuances of who likes what, who's intellectually right or whatever, um, a lot of people have a lot of wealth built up, built up in Bitcoin. And when someone can just say something and eliminate 20% of it, I don't think there's any reason to think they won't all get upset. I would be upset um, because selfishly, I think, you know, everyone would have to admit that they are happy that Bitcoin made them wealthy and they don't want anyone upsetting that. Yeah, no, big time. Um, I don't know. Who do you I have more, more, I, who do you think's more loyal to their holdings, Bitcoin uh, owners or Tesla shareholders? Bitcoiners, for sure. Yeah, you I've respect, never seen it, as quite it, a passionate as crowd. Yes, it's so passionate. You have to really respect how. Now there's some pumpers out there that we can't name, but they're you know you have to respect how dedicated. Yes, uh, yes. Sorry. <laughs> I think yeah. I think yeah. Uh, I understand what you mean there. The. But the, the dedication they have, you have to respect how, how much they love it. And it's a core part of their, you know, kind of belief system of how the world should work. And whether you agree or disagree, they're, they're way more, you know, into it. And they're dedicated and they put a ton of time and effort at Tesla shareholders as well. But that's less of a, you know, it's, sometimes it's just like someone's big investment or something like that. It's not like a core part of their lifestyle. Well, uh, I don't know. Some people are. I guess. I don't know. I do think once something has made you fabulously wealthy, I think it inherently becomes a part of your lifestyle yeah which for some of the people it has done quite well there's so many things i want to say about this but you know but i don't want to upset our listeners yeah, <laughs> yeah i gotta you know who was right all along and i guess we should have seen it coming michael michael burry yeah there was that thing about today about his uh, inflation worries tesla uh, puts yeah he put it in today he was, was he, he anti-bitcoin uh no i think he's pretty new no, I don't want to say. I forget. He had something. I don't think it was crazy long or short, but who knows? Read what he had to say. Uh, actually, he deleted all his tweets, so maybe not. But yeah, in his portfolio, it said notional value of his Tesla put options were 40% of the portfolio, which in reality, it's probably like 4 or 5%. But, you know, options, you know, whatever, the contracts are usually a lot less than the actual notional value of the shares. So 40% is a lot larger than it actually is, but he made a big bet there. And he also... He's been right thus far. I mean... Yeah, he had put options on, I believe, TLT, which is the treasury ETF. So that would be a bet on inflation. He's been... I think so, yeah. He, I think he's like the pinnacle or sort of the peak example of how hard it is to be truly contrarian in the moment. Because you yes. get hate from so many people. He got a lot of hate. Yeah, he did. He doesn't care, though. Yeah, uh, I think yeah, I think well, being off Twitter is probably good for him. Well, it's probably yeah, because I mean the reason we're on Twitter is to learn and build up this show and get ideas. But if you're someone that's kind of he's already an expert, you know, you would say I would yeah. You, you kind of don't want that clouding of your opinions, and you know, people are going to be saying you're wrong constantly. Um, I wish he was still on though, because it's fun. To have him on, although Definitely. he although he's a bit crazier than I thought from the movie, he is a yeah, it's a damn shame. But <laughs> he is a little crazy. But you got to respect his uh, his track record. All right, what's your last story? Okay, yeah, this one's a fun one. The Vision Fund uh, is back. I guess this would have been a hot water for us. So you know, last one to two three years, one to two three years ago, everyone, including us, had written off the SoftBank Vision Fund. Everyone, including us, was making fun of those investment slides, which are always great. The unicorn trough, um, the 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 arrows just pointing up that are very cartoonish. But you know the WeWork stuff and the mobility investments look bad at the time. But and I guess we'd also worry about the uh, Saudi investment fund that could get into a sticky situation. Uh, I think he was probably sweating that one out, given the history of their actions when things don't go their way. 
but however, the they've had kind of a turnaround. Cumulative return of the Vision Fund, which was a hundred billion dollars, is now one point six four times the original investment. Not phenomenal, but you know, pretty good return of three point eight five times on listed investments, which is stuff that I believe that means publicly traded. So that's fifteen billion dollars to sixty billion dollars, and they basically broken even on their private investments, although some of the carrying values may be lower than what they would get in the public markets. Um, you know, investment deck, they, we made fun of it. It proved to be true. Some of these investments worked out. It's kind of crazy. Well, yeah, my only con- – so they were a big backer in Grab, right? Uh, everything, yes. You, grab and <laughs> yeah. Coupon. C- grab, Coupon, everything. Didi. It's almost – it's almost hard to be wrong when you have that much money because when you get something that's super capital intensive to scale and not many people can do it because they don't have the money and you back it. Yeah. Well, they backed you Uber. You can make it happen with yeah. the money. They backed Uber and DoorDash, which is like, yeah, we both won. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but like Coupon, you know, building out all those facilities, they couldn't. I'm not sure that Coupon would be what Coupon is today without SoftBank's money. Yeah, I'm not sure how much what the percentage of their investment was, but same with po- Grab. Possibly, yeah. Which I guess, if you have that kind of money, those are kind of the investments you want to dabble in, right? Because it's yeah. harder for people to reach that scale. And if you have a hundred billion dollars, you can't be doing seed investments, small deals on some P two B software company that has like a two million dollar or sorry two million customer base. I mean, yeah, but I would take the private investments uh, with a grain of salt since they probably do the syrup. They they bid them up. On oh, they have bid them up. Yeah, I guess yeah. Some of them. I, I was saying the carrying value might be lower, but I guess that might even out if they do some of that. Um, it's like we work shenanigans, <laughs> as we might want to call them. It's worth a billion today. We're gonna a year from now. We're gonna do another round at three billion. Yeah, I don't know, man. A hundred billion dollars. Masasan might be the best investor who portrays himself poorly. Yeah, he's. I mean, his track record's pretty good there's a lot of smart investors that pitch softbank too as an like the company as an investment just because it's kind of one of those some of the parts things yeah seems too big though but i would caveat the end of this that all the excitement around softbank everything it's been a, such a big story for five years his lps have likely far likely underperformed a u.s index fund that was just take them two minutes to do all this stuff maybe it's exciting and it's fun but, you know, you kind of think about that. You know, we could have yeah. just bought. I've always thought if I was fabulously wealthy, I would just index. Yeah, but it's not fun. It's, so easy it's not to, fun, though. That's true. Life's too short to index. That's true. That, no, that, that, that's the mindset. It's just not as fun. But I think you look back at something like this. I don't know. I guess maybe $100 billion. Like, you can't index that. That's just too much uh, for one person. It would take years and years and years to do that. But who knows? I don't know. Good story. Uh, you kind of hope SoftBank doesn't implode because you don't want anything to implode, right? But there's there's still the worries, the worries of that. Maybe less than they were two years ago, though. Certainly. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it. Thank you all for listening. We do, I believe, we have interviews kind of coming up for the foreseeable future. Futures. So. A see limited and coupon discussion with someone with boots on the ground, right? Yes. So that could so. Be, that should be exciting. Yeah. All right. Um, Anyway, we uh, are general partners at Arch Capital. Uh, Partners there may have positions in the securities discussed on this podcast. Uh, We are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Feel free to get in touch with us wherever you can find us, Twitter, our email, anything like that. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time. 